and welcome to another edition of Book Talk. I'm Stephen Ussery, and I'm pleased to welcome Rebecca Boggs-Roberts back to the program today for the second of a two-part interview. Rebecca is a journalist and author, having been a correspondent for NPR, PRI, and the BBC, including the program's Morning Edition, The World and Talk of the Nation. She's currently the Deputy Director of Events for the Library of Congress. Today, we'll continue our discussion of her newest book, Untold Power, The Fascinating Rise and Complex Legacy of First Lady Edith Wilson, which is published by Viking. Rebecca, before we continue talking about the life of Edith Bowling Galt Wilson, when you set off to write this biography, you learned that another author was planning to do the same at the same time. I did. A friend of mine, actually, a woman named Heath Lee, who I knew from her work writing a book called League of Wives. So when I started kind of poking around in Edith's story, a couple people mentioned to me that Heath was also working on Edith Wilson biography. And she must have heard the same about me. The world of women's history is not that big. And this is an amazing thing. Her generosity continues to stun me. She called me up and said, I hear you're writing an Edith biography. I have to shelve my project because I'm working on a biography of Pat Nixon. And here's all my research. And let me introduce you to everybody I've already talked to. That is amazing. It was incredible, continues to be incredible. And she continues to be my biggest cheerleader. She's still working on that Pat Nixon book. I can't wait to read it when it's done. But she said, you know, I can't write this book right now. I'm delighted it's in your hands. It couldn't be better. And she since then has, you know, recommended me for all kinds of speaking engagements. She's promoted the book. She's just been so incredibly beyond collegial and supportive. Boy, what do you get her for a holiday present? Right? Exactly. While Edith would become the first lady, she would actually be the second woman to hold that title with Woodrow Wilson. What was his first marriage to the former Ellen Axon like? Ellen contrasted with Edith quite starkly. So Ellen and Woodrow met when he was in graduate school, and she expected to be an academic's wife, and she was good at that. I mean, he worked his way up through the ranks as a professor at Princeton, ultimately becoming the president. You know, they had three daughters. She was great at running that faculty house where students were slamming in and out of the doors all the time. And she was very well educated and accomplished herself. She was quite an accomplished painter. And she sort of enjoyed that intellectual life. And in 1910, when Wilson first ran for governor of New Jersey, she was all for it and, and had actually pretty good political instincts. But it was really not her natural habitat. And when he won the presidency in 1912. So think how quick that is, right? You've you've never held political office before. You become governor of New Jersey, elected in 1910, take office in 1911, run for president in 1912, take office in 1913. And so all of a sudden, the Wilson family is here in Washington. And First Lady was just not a good fit for Ellen Wilson. She was shy. She was a little dowdy. The gossip columns made fun of how she did her hair and what she wore. The public hostess role of First Lady just did not come naturally to her. She'd much rather have, you know, small, highly intellectual conversations with a few people and and be able to paint. Her daughters, who were all in their 20s when Wilson took office, took on some of that public hostessing role. But actually, in the first two years of his first administration, two of them got married and moved out. And the third, who was actually the oldest, Margaret, wanted to be a singer. So she was trying to create 
a career around her singing and she was touring as often as she could. And so while they were helpful when they were around, they weren't around all that much. And then in 1914, Ellen had a kind of protracted illness. It was diagnosed as Bright's disease at the time, which is a liver ailment. And she died in August of 1914. So she was actually not in the first lady chair for very long. Back then, even though there was a lot of social demands on her in the scene, the role of first lady would be later redefined by Edith Bowling. I mean, I think it's redefined by almost every woman who holds it, but certainly Edith elevated it in terms of its visibility, in part because she was better at the social hostessing side of things, but also, you know, very shortly after her marriage to Wilson, the U.S. got involved in World War I. And so the U.S. was on an international stage in a way it hadn't been before. But further first ladies continued to define the role. Edith did not champion a cause in the way that we expect first ladies to do now. She never gave interviews. She did write this memoir, and she was the first first lady to write a memoir, but she did that 18 years after she left office. She had lived in D.C. for quite some time, but never really tried to get into the political smart set. Yeah, and you know, D.C. in some ways is kind of a minor character in this story because the city is growing as Edith is growing. This might surprise people who don't live here, but there's a whole non-federal town here in Washington. <laughs> you know, who do you think roots for the commanders? <laughs> yes, the government is the biggest employer here, and, and most people are involved in government in some way, but we locals have a whole other world. And so for someone who ran a jewelry store to not be involved in federal Washington was not actually all that surprising. And in fact, she did not aspire to be involved in federal Washington at all. In fact, when Wilson was first elected in 1912, Edith had a sister-in-law who was a huge Wilson fan, despite the fact that women couldn't vote, and wanted to come to the inaugural parade in March of 1913. And Edith said, what? You know, I why would you want to go to the inauguration? It's just a kind of a traffic headache. And the sister-in-law said, come on, it's, a, it's the first Democrat elected in ages. And you've got this balcony at Galt's Jewelry Store right on the parade route. You've got the perfect place to see it. I can't believe you don't want to go. And Edith had to explain to her that like locals don't always do that stuff. And she held that line for a long time. In fact, when Carrie Grayson first came to Edith and said, you know, I'd, I'd really like you to befriend Helen Bones. Helen Bones was Woodrow Wilson's cousin. She was social secretary in the White House. And after Ellen's death and after the daughters had moved out, to the degree that anybody was first ladying, Helen Bones was kind of doing the bare minimum. But she was sad and she was grieving and she was lonesome. So Carrie Grayson went to Edith and said, be nice to Helen Bones. Go make friends with her. And Edith said, you've got the wrong gal. Like, I want no part of the White House. That's not my scene whatsoever. I can't play that game. And Grayson said, you don't have to. They're in mourning. There's no game to play. She just needs a friend. Take her for walks. Give her tea. Edith finally relented. And she and Helen Bones did become friends. But what they would do is go for little treks in Rock Creek Park and then go back to Edith's house for tea in DuPont Circle. They were not participating in official Washingtonian things. Now, Paul, he was born in Virginia. Woodrow grew up all over the South, didn't he? Yes. And, you know, you can visit his birthplace museum in Stanton, Virginia, but he only lived there until he was two. His father was a Presbyterian minister and moved around based on which church he was serving. So he's got ties to a few different towns in the South. 
He went to Davidson College for a little while, so he's got some North Carolina ties. He went to UVA for law school, so he's got some Virginia ties. His wife and some extended family was from Rome, Georgia. So you can find Wilson tie-ins throughout the Southeast. So you mentioned it was Dr. Carrie Grayson who got them introduced. So what is our meet-cute for this book? It was pretty cute. I mean, it must be said. So one of those days that Helen and Edith were meeting for their walk. Helen said, come back to the White House for tea today instead of going to your house. And Edith said, we've just been walking in the park. My boots are a mess. I can't go to the White House. And Helen insisted, which was unusual, and said, it'll be okay. We can take the elevator straight to the family quarters. No one will see your boots. You'll be fine. So Edith relents. And it was a total setup. She gets in the elevator, muddy boots and all. They go up to the family quarters, the elevator doors open, and there's the president and Carrie Grayson just off the golf course. Edith was not impressed, it must be said. She thought that the president's golf clothes were very unfashionable. And they had tea together, the four of them. The president immediately invited her to stay for supper. And she said, no, you know, I, I've really overstayed my ability to be here with my muddy boots. I will come back another time. He seems to have been smitten from that moment. And in fact, Helen Bones wrote in a letter, you know, I didn't see in that first minute what would happen. It took about 10 minutes. So he starts writing to Edith almost immediately. And, you know, I've written a couple of books about the suffrage movement. I am not a huge Woodrow Wilson fan. I think that he had a lot of blind spots and he cultivated this intellectual superiority to the point of priggishness. Let me tell you, his letters are racy. <laughs> it's like, who knew? It is amazing. Who knew he had it in him? And it sort of makes me like it more. He doesn't have any sense of humor, as far as I can tell, but he is so sincere and he is unafraid to tell Edith what he thinks from the very beginning, even when he has no hope of her returning his affection. And he just gushes, gushes, gushes. Their correspondence is sort of amazing. She holds him at arm's length for a very long time. So he was just all that his wife had only been dead a few months. And he, by all accounts, mourned her deeply. But boy, was he taken with Edith from that very first minute. Do you think she wasn't genuinely interested in him? Or do you think she was just playing hard to get? I think she genuinely had a lot to give up. First of all, he first proposed five weeks after they met. And I think that did take her wholly by surprise. That wasn't a, my no means, yes, keep trying. It was a, I barely know you, no. But also, she was enjoying this independent life. She did not want to get married again. And to anybody, let alone someone for whom she'd have to sacrifice all of her privacy. You know, if you read their letters... She keeps changing the subject every time he gushes. You know, he'll write these ardent things about how he wants to kiss her eyelids and, you know, her beautiful form. And and she'll write back and say, oh, that's lovely. Listen, can we talk about the Carranza government in Mexico? What's going on down there? <laughs> you know, she really wanted both to keep the content less personal, but also she really wanted to know about the politics. You know, she asked these very pointed questions about will William Jennings Bryan resign as secretary of state? Who do you think he's gonna, is going to take his place? She told him that she thought his second letter to the Germans about the sinking of the Lusitania was not up to his usual standards. I mean, she really, from early days, was 
totally confident in her own opinions. And he finally caught on. He didn't stop with the gushy gushy letters, but he added to them these big packets of information. So, you know, kind of along with the love letter, there'd be legislation and diplomatic correspondence. And he taught her his personal cipher so she could decode messages from his advisors overseas. And it wasn't a patronizing, you know, oh, here, study up, little girl. It was, I want to know what you think. Wilson was not someone who had a huge cabinet full of advisors. He wasn't polling, you know, a great big army of people. He always just had two or three very trusted close advisors. And over the summer of 1915, she became first among those. He really came to rely on her judgment above all others. And that must have been awfully heady for her. I think that is what ultimately won her over. You know, this is this is someone who was probably told she was beautiful every day of her life and not so much told she was smart. And for the leader of the nation, a famous intellectual, to be telling her that he trusts her judgment and, and thinks her brilliant, that was a pretty successful way to woo her. And he is really fortunate because she did have a German in her family that all that information could have gone sideways very badly for him. Yeah, I mean, the security issues be damned when he passed those big packets of information over to her throughout the summer of 1915. It is remarkable. But, you know, even then, even once she realized that she was willing to marry him, she told him she'd only marry him if he lost. <laughs> if, he, if he lost re-election in 1916, she was in because she she really was wary of being seen, of, as she said, wanting the office, not the man. When she said that, by the way, all he seems to have heard is, I'll marry you, and started telling everyone <laughs> they were engaged. So, <laughs> With his wife not even have been a year past, and he's proposing marriage, what was the attitude of D.C. and other Americans like when the president is, is courting so soon after his wife's passing? There was a lot of talk about how that was going to go over, even though universal Nationwide suffrage hadn't passed yet. More and more states were enfranchising women, especially in the West, which was seen as crucial to his reelection chances. And there was real concern that these new women voters would hold it against him for moving on from his wife so quickly. And there was even a completely bananas plot to pretend that some old love letters were surfacing to try to anyway, that you'll have to read about that in the book. <laughs> that is too complicated to get into. But there was some concern that it would look unseemly. Happily, Edith was sort of charming enough that the press seems to have embraced her completely. She was lovely. She was appropriate. She looked good in pictures, but also she humanized him. And so suddenly he was smiling and going out in public more and, you know, showing up in places that he had hidden from during his first term. And so the press approved of, you know, the president in love. So they married in December 1915. The coverage was almost universally positive. 1916 was an election year and she went with him on the trail and she was good at all of that. She never gave speeches or, or gave interviews, but she shook all the right hands and thanked all the right hosts and made everybody feel important and paid attention to. He wins re-election in a squeaker in 1916. And then 1917, suddenly the U.S. is involved in World War I. The job of first lady is kind of bananas anyway, but being a wartime first lady is really hard. And suddenly that public example part of the role becomes everything. 
And she picked up that very quickly. She immediately signed up for all the food conservation efforts and had the card in the window of the White House saying that they were doing Wheatless Wednesdays and Meatless Mondays and all of that. She had sheep grazing the White House lawn to free up the landscapers to do war work. She volunteered at a Red Cross canteen near Union Station. She you know, made pajamas and pillowcases for the troops. So she really threw herself into that setting an example part of First Lady. And that went over very, very well with the public. I recently interviewed Oline Eaton, who teaches in the D.C. area at Howard University, and she has a book about Jacqueline Kennedy Onassis called Finding Jackie. And I was really struck in both books on the the role of gossip, gossip columns and newspapers Mm -hmm. on how they affect the lives of the first women. What was Town Topics and how did they cover Edith Wilson? So Town Topics was this anonymous, very juicy series of columns. And I have to really thank my friend Rachel Faulkner for managing to talk the New York Public Library into letting me have access to them during a pandemic when you're supposed to go to the New York Public Library to read them. You know, gossip columns are a fascinating source because, first of all, if you're writing women's history, sometimes that's the only place that women are being covered in the news. But also, they're so ephemeral, right? They reflect the feeling of the moment. And three months later, they could be reflecting something else entirely. But they really did, and Town Topics specifically, amongst the many gossip columns, really did dictate public opinion to a huge degree. Town Topics approved of Edith for the most part. They thought that she was a good choice for the president. They approved of the fact that the White House was becoming more social. They definitely approved of all of the wartime stuff that she was doing. But in anonymous columns, rumors can flourish. And so it's an amazing source 100 years later to kind of see what was on people's minds outside of the more formal White House beat reportage. When she started becoming interested in politics and speaking with Woodrow about it and discussing it and giving her input into everything, she wasn't shy. She wasn't retiring about it. She didn't defer to his status. She let her feelings be known, and especially about William Jennings Bryan and Edward (laughs) House, who was known as Colonel House. Yeah, she didn't like either of them much. In fact, when Brian finally resigned as Secretary of State. Edith wrote Wilson a letter saying, hooray, Brian is out. You were much too nice to him. And she didn't trust Colonel House. He was one of Wilson's two or three closest advisors. And Edith found him untrustworthy and a yes man. And she was not afraid to say so. She also had initial qualms about Joe Tumulty, whose title was secretary, but he really functioned as chief of staff. I must say a lot of Edith's problem with Joe Tumulty was snobbery. She found him a little too working class and a little too Catholic for her tastes. But Wilson ultimately did break with Colonel House over the negotiations over the treaty in Paris ending World War I. But Tumulty was with him all through the whole stroke incident and became one of Edith's sort of co-conspirators in that chapter. Now, despite her eager involvement in Wilson's presidential work, she and he really weren't in favor of women's suffrage. Did you discover why that she wasn't interested in suffrage? Oh, God, I wish I knew, right? Why is this business-owning, car-driving, independent woman who trusted her own judgment and blazed trails in so many ways, why wasn't she interested in exercising her full rights as a citizen? It just... It baffles me. And I understand that later in the suffrage movement, 
when the National Women's Party started picketing the White House and very directly criticizing Woodrow Wilson that Edith hated that. I, I get that she didn't find those tactics appealing or fair. But long before that, I think the only thing I can discover is it kind of goes back to that cult of true womanhood we talked about before, that there was just something a little not nice about insisting on a role in the public sphere. And, you know, you see echoes of this argument a generation later with the ERA, that there were women, the ranks of the anti-suffragists were filled with women who said, you know, we own the private sphere, we raise the children, we run the household, that's very important. Men are out there getting their hands dirty in the public sphere. And not only would we be stooping to their level to some degree to get our hands dirty in the same way, but also we would be denigrating the importance of our own domestic sphere by by saying we want something more. And I think that's just where Edith came down, that there was part of her that thought it was a little bit inappropriate for women to be involved in those things. I will say once she got the right to vote, she used it and, you know, she couldn't vote for president as a citizen of Washington, D.C. That amendment was passed after her death, but she did exercise the right once she had it. Why were the Republicans so against the League of Nations and the Versailles Treaty? Oh, well, many books have been written about that. I think some of it is purely not wanting to give the Democratic president a win, right? We see that now on both sides of the aisle, just on purely partisan reasons, wanting to fight anything the other side wants. Specifically about the treaty, um, you know, Wilson had insisted on being part of the negotiations himself because he wanted to include this League of Nations. That was his vision of global peace. For him, that was why the U.S. was involved in World War I. We didn't have any territory at stake. For him, it was so that the U.S. would have a seat at the table in dictating the future of global peace. And so the League of Nations was his dream. And he succeeded in getting it included in the treaty. But in the 1918 midterms, when Republicans took the majority in both the House and Senate, there were the Senate needs to ratify treaties in this country. So there were members there who were never going to pass anything. They, they were going to fight the treaty no matter what it said. But then there was this issue with the League of Nations that some worried that it would take the ability to declare war away from Congress. Because if we were in an international pact where we had to go to war to save a fellow member of the pact, that that X'd Congress out of the ability to make that decision. And so while there was a group who called themselves the irreconcilables in the Senate who were never going to vote for the treaty, there was another group who was willing to make some compromises, particularly around the League of Nations and around this uh, question of war authority, and that with some concessions, maybe they would ratify it. It's Wilson who said all or nothing. Wilson would not make those compromises or any compromises. He said, I negotiated this in good faith. This is the treaty, yes or no. It's amazing how much time he spent outside of the United States trying to get this thing in Europe passed, and then later with his stroke. So, I mean, he was out of the D.C. scene for a considerable chunk of time, even before his health wouldn't allow him to be there. Right. Can you imagine? So because he insisted on going to Paris himself, and Edith went with him, because where he went, she went, they were gone for the better part of six months. 
you know, they left in November of 1918 and didn't come back until the summer of 1919. They came back once briefly in March to close the last Congress and open the next one. But your president gone for six months in an age before global telecommunications. And then he comes back to Washington, faces this Senate treaty fight and decides he's got to take the treaty to the people. But the only way it's going to happen is if he goes on a cross-country train tour touting the benefits of the League of Nations. And so by August of 1919, he's out of Washington again, off on this completely ill-conceived, ill-fated train tour. He was already pretty sick. He had gotten sick in Paris. It was 1918. There was a flu epidemic. He might have had a mini stroke there. He comes back to this protracted fight. He's exhausted. He's at the end of his rope. And then he gets on a cross-country train tour where he's in a, you know, 100-degree metal car going from city to city and shaking hundreds of hands. It was a complete recipe for disaster. He did, in fact, collapse on the train. The end of the tour was canceled. The train came rushing back to Washington. And then a week later, October 2nd, 1919, he suffered a massive stroke. And Edith had been opposed to this trip. Everyone knew it was a terrible idea. Edith was opposed. Dr. Kerry Grayson was opposed. Joe Tumulty was opposed. And they just couldn't talk him out of it. They Even when they said, you know, this might kill you, he kind of loved the idea of playing a martyr to the cause of the League of Nations. So all they could do was go with him and try to save him from his own worst instincts. By the time he had the stroke... Here in Washington, it was so debilitating that there was no question. I mean, he really, his life actually hung in the balance for a good week. And then even once he was out of mortal danger, he was bedridden. His whole left side was paralyzed. He found it very hard to concentrate. His speech was slurred. He was a very, very sick man. How in the world do you keep the vice president, the cabinet, congressional leadership, and the media away from the president of the United States for months on end? For months on end. I mean, first of all, deciding that's your plan is sort of remarkable, right? And in Edith's telling, the doctors said to her, you know, your husband needs to be kept from all stress and he needs to sleep a lot and he needs to keep his mind calm and he can't have any bad news. And, you know, in other words, he can't be president, right? Like, what does the president do all day but face stress and hear bad news and use his brain? So if he does all those things, he's going to die. But meanwhile, he can't step down because the only thing he's living for is to see the League of Nations happen. And so if he resigns or lets the vice president step in, you will take away his whole motivation for getting better. So if he acts as president, he'll die. And if he resigns, he'll die. And so from Edith's point of view, the only thing she could do was do his job for him until he was better enough to do it himself, which is preposterous. But that's what she decided. And she and Grayson and Tumulty just closed ranks. And it is amazing to me how well they kept the facts of his health from so many people. Some of it is, of course, there was no TV. And even just the idea of a White House press corps wasn't quite the same as we think of it now. The bulletins that Grayson was pulling out from the White House were just very vague. You know, they said he was suffering from nervous exhaustion or nervous digestion or, you know, these kind of non-medical vaguely things. But they kept saying he's he's on the mend. He'll he'll be better soon. It's all OK. And the fact that there wasn't a clear path for the vice president to come through because there was no 25th Amendment was kind of part of it. But also, you know, with a Democratic executive branch and a Republican legislative branch, most of the people 
in the White House and around the White House and in the cabinet kind of had a vested interest in propping Wilson up and keeping him in office. So there were willing co-conspirators who, even if they didn't know what was going on, were willing to not ask too many questions. And that included some members of the press. Say like February, March of 1920, more people did start to ask questions. And in fact, Town Topics, that gossip column was one of the boldest saying, you know, if he's okay, let us see him. And if he's not okay, we need to know that. But he wasn't seen in public for months. And even once the drumbeat started in the press, what they did was kind of prop Wilson up in the back of a car and drive him around town. He still wasn't, you know, giving any interviews or or meeting with anybody. It went on a shockingly long time. You've worked as a journalist, and we used to air The World from PRI several years ago on WYPL here. Did you put yourself into the journalist's shoes and imagine what you would have done in such a situation? I mean, it's hard not to. You have to wonder why weren't they asking tougher questions? But interestingly, when there did start to be some news articles suggesting that Wilson was not, in fact, acting and that Mrs. Wilson was acting, and there were articles saying that, they weren't all critical. You know, some of them said, this is outrageous, we didn't elect her. But some of them said, what a paragon of, you know, virtuous wifeliness. So wouldn't we all be so lucky to have as devoted a wife as the First Lady is? So even once it started to come out, it was not universally condemned. As you mentioned, she wrote a memoir, and you also mentioned that probably didn't hew super close to the historical record at times. Do you think that was for the sake of a good story, for self-aggrandizement, protecting her husband's legacy? What were these variances from the truth all about? Well, interestingly, while most memoirs are, in fact, written for self-aggrandizement, Edith was written for self-denial. I mean, her whole point was to downplay her role and to insist that her husband was in control from the very first moment. And she was interested in reputation management. That's what she was doing. I think everyone in that administration wrote a memoir, and most of them published them soon after he left office in 1921 or just after his death in 1924. And the usher did too, didn't he? The usher, the Secret Service agent, all the members of the cabinet, Colonel House, all of them. They increasingly made Edith mad (laughs) as she read them. (laughs) She felt that their version of events was not the legacy she wanted her husband to leave. And so she started her own memoir kind of in a fury on a train in order to set the record straight as she saw it. So that was absolutely the purpose, was to curate a legacy for Woodrow Wilson and to minimize her own role in it. Over the last 20 years or so, Wilson's legacy has come under re-examination and his racist policies and attitudes have really come to the fore. And you yourself are a graduate of Princeton University. How is the university dealing with that? Well, the dorms that I lived in my freshman and sophomore year are no longer Wilson College. They are now First College. The School of International Affairs is no longer the Woodrow Wilson School. You know, I think the university is kind of figuring out what to do with Wilson and how to honor his role as president of Princeton, because it's not, you know, random that things there are named after him. He was integrally involved with the school, but also understand that his legacy is complicated. And what's been so interesting to me watching the the revision of this saintly portrayal of a, a visionary of world peace, which is kind of the received wisdom about Wilson until the last few years 
is how much of that myth Edith is responsible for. Mm. You know, he died in 1924. She lived in 1961, and she spent a huge amount of that time myth-making. So all of that heroic image that we have of him that we are now revisiting, a lot of it was burnished by Edith in those years after his death. And so she shared quite a bit of his unreconstructed views of white Southerners of the time. Did her views change over time going into the civil rights era? You know, it's hard to know. I will say that she softened on some things, like she supported Al Smith for president in 1928. There's a time when she probably would not have supported a Catholic candidate. I don't know that we would ever call her progressive on race issues. She was an unreconstructed Confederate. She was not above telling a darky joke. She did come around a little bit on suffrage and exercise her rights there. So I think some of her views softened. And she was, to the end, a very loyal member of the Democratic Party. And the Democratic Party was moving. Again, she lived till 1961. So between the administrations of Franklin Roosevelt and then the beginning of the Kennedy administration, she you know, saw Democrats becoming more progressive than her era of Democrats had been. And, you know, she didn't talk about her own views very much, but I do think she mellowed over time. You've written several books now set in the early 20th century. Are you going to continue to investigate this era? Yeah. I mean, I find, as I told you earlier, this time between the Civil War and World War One fascinating. And because there's so much social change, I think the other thing that I have learned from telling Edith's story is that the stories of women that are either undertold or badly told are legion. <laughs> so there's no shortage of other stories I want to tell. And I just need to do a little homework and see how many primary sources are out there. I've got a couple ideas on the back burner. You mentioned Carrie Nation. The first time I saw a picture of Carrie Nation, I said, she looks exactly like my grandmother, except yeah. maybe eight inches shorter. <laughs> <laughs> but she's a classic example. That's actually one of the reasons I was reading that biography is, you know, if you know anything about her, you think of her as this crazy hatchet wielding fanatic who chopped up bars in her effort to get prohibition. But a lot of that Carrie Nation was crazy stuff is kind of sexist garbage. She was actually pretty savvy. So, you know, it's time to retell some of these stories. Well, we're looking forward to whenever uh, you can tell us about that next project. Thank you so much. Rebecca Boggs-Roberts is the author of Untold Power, The Fascinating Rise and Complex Legacy of First Lady Edith Wilson, which is published by Viking. I'm Stephen Ussery, and this is Book Talk. Thank you for joining us today. Book Talk is produced in the studios of FM 89.3 WYPL Memphis, a service of the Memphis Public Library, a division of the city of Memphis. Book Talk is copyrighted by the Memphis Public Library, all rights reserved.